You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. <laughs> Dutch Dutch rail is like yeah. aces. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Vox.com's Dylan Scott, and by an old Weeds friend, New York Times uh, investigative reporter, Sarah Clef. Hi, guys. Hey, let's we're virtually clap because <laughs> we are so glad to have Sarah back with us. Uh, the, the occasion uh, for this, this momentous event is... Um, we have a, a series of articles called uh, Everybody Covered uh, that's coming out. With some help from the Commonwealth Fund, uh, we were able to send uh, journalists to a variety of countries, learn about their health systems abroad. Uh, Dylan has been to the Netherlands, Taiwan, and Australia, learning about three uh, different, very different models of, of universal healthcare systems. And I, I mean, I think it's interesting, just something you hear a lot on the internet is that like every other country has the kind of thing that is known as Medicare for All in, in the United States. Um, I think Weeds listeners know that that is not true. Uh, but it, it can be hard to grasp, like, the true diversity of things that are that are really out there. Yeah, and I think that was one of the goals of this project was demonstrating that there are all these different paths to universal health coverage. Like, the one way that all of these countries were covering have exceeded the United States is that they do effectively cover 100% of their populations with health insurance. But they've come up with these different models to do it. Like Taiwan does look a lot like a Medicare for All program. Like it's one national health insurance plan, pretty low cost sharing. But the Netherlands is the, you know, diametric opposite. It's a fully privatized health insurance scheme. It's like compulsory private health insurance. So everybody has a health insurance plan, but they're administered by private companies. So, so we really kind of run the whole spectrum. The, the Dutch system is sort of like back in the, I don't even want to say Obamacare days, but like the like proto-Obamacare days when like Max Baucus was like drawing stuff on envelopes. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, Peter Orzag, I think was somewhere maybe still in the think tank world. This was like the thing that they would say. Mm. Well, it's probably the most similar to our system in the Affordable Care Act, too, right? Like, if you look at, like, the health insurance marketplace, like, almost like a supercharged version of that where we were all in the marketplace. I think, I mean, Dylan, you know more because you went there. But I think that would be somewhat yeah. similar to a Dutch system. Yeah. So, like, 
Weeds listeners are also, I think, familiar with the three-legged stool, right? Yes. Like the ban on uh, community rating. You know, everybody has to be charged the self same insurance premium, more or less, regardless of health status and guaranteed cover or guaranteed issue. Can't be denied coverage because of your health status and an individual mandate, meaning, you know, there's a penalty if you don't sign up. And that, um, those are the three legs that the uh, Dutch private insurance market are built on. But the difference, as Sarah says, is that rather than this being, you know, like the individual insurance market in the U.S. where it's just like, you know, 20 million people who don't happen to not get insurance through their work, every Dutch citizen every year purchases a private health, their own individual private health insurance plan that's undergirded by those regulations. Because this is a really big difference. I mean, I feel like I wrote the phrase a million times at some point that that this three-legged stool is, like, modeled on the Dutch and Swiss systems. Looking back on it, like, still under, you know, forgetting Trump, right? Like, full implementation ACA, like, the plurality of people would have had job-based insurance. Right. A lot of people are over the age of 65. Um it, a non-trivial number of people are, like, military veterans, things like that. Then, like, people who are poor were getting Medicaid. Yeah. So it was actually, like, a—they had taken some concepts from the right. Dutch system. Mm-hmm. But, like, actually, the the salient thing about the Dutch system is that everybody gets their right. insurance. It's Obamacare right. for all. Yeah. Well, and so a question I have about the Dutch, this is more about the politics of healthcare, because um, we all know that the individual mandate has been like so incredibly unpopular in the U.S. The like fee was repealed a few years ago. There's like Supreme Court case after Supreme Court case around the mandate. How does that work in the Netherlands? Do people care or think about it? Like, is the penalty giant and that's why it works? Um, Because I've always been fascinated with this idea, like other countries like Switzerland, which I think is pretty similar to the Netherlands, that that they seem to have this requirement to carry health insurance as just kind of like a nothing burger in the exact opposite of the way it is here. Right. So I think there's two things here. One is looking at it from a political point of view, like— the Dutch system as it exists today was the creation of a conservative government okay. over there. So, like, they had before 2006, they had, like, a two-tiered system, wealthier people with private coverage, poorer people in a public program. And that wasn't working very well. So, in around 2006, they decided to remake it. And sort of the compromise between the conservative majority and the liberal minority was, like, we're going to have universal coverage. Everybody agrees we need to do that. But we're going to try to do it in a marketplace way to appeal to the conservative uh, government that was in charge at the time. So I think maybe that's, for starters, one reason mm-hmm. that, um, that so it So there's, has, like, no one with an incentive There's nobody who's, like, like, yeah, there's no this. equivalent to, like, the way that Republicans were running against the individual mandate when that's Obamacare the, was going to be. I bad. mean, that's, like, the fraught political story of the ACA, right, is yeah. that, like, when Hillary and w- when Bill Clinton is trying to do a different reform, some conservatives are like, no, 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 we could accomplish this with a mandate. Mm-hmm. Then that doesn't happen. Then that idea kind of kicks around for a million years. And then it comes back right. as like an idea Democrats think moderate Republicans might sign on to. Mm-hmm. And they but, will not sign but, on to. But then they don't, <laughs> yeah, right? right? So now you have like, and I, whereas in the Netherlands, this takes the form that it originally had in the United States, right? Which is a conservative political party's alternate vision for achieving universality. Right, exactly. Um, And then I think the other piece of it is that the mandate in the Netherlands is much harsher than the one that we saw in the United States. Like, How much is it? What do they yeah. do? So like jail time? You get – no, <laughs> you don't get jailed. But then so you have health care when your hands get jailed. You get – if you don't carry insurance, you you will get fined twice – 
which basically a fee that is more than the insurance premium you would have paid if you had just signed up for insurance as you're supposed to. And then after two fines, the government will actually automatically enroll you in a health insurance plan. And if necessary, they'll like take the wage or the take the premiums yeah. out of your wages. So it's a very forceful mandate in a way that the ACAs was And not. then how is it? I mean, you know, the other concern people wound up having with with sort of the marketplace plans when they came out was that the unsubsidized premiums were very high. Right. Um the subsidies are generous if you're really close to 133%, but once you get up into the middle class, that the subsidies are not that big. Right. And then the product still carries very high, I don't know, very high, substantial deductibles and, and co-payments. I mean, do the Dutch give you, is it like a much more generous yes. insurance program? So like insurance premiums are capped for everybody. So it's a, I think the average nominal premium is about $1,600 a year. And that's like the most that anybody would have to pay. Um, that is and a then lot people, <laughs> people with lower incomes get like an additional subsidy or additional insistence for the government to bring their monthly premiums down even further. But yes, they have sort of like, they have applied that level of sort of government assistance to everybody to make sure that premiums stay affordable. Yeah, I mean, that's like a really big, I mean, I'd see this, I, I wish I could take this knowledge back in time. <laughs> uh, because, you know, again, like, that's like, okay, yes, like, formalistically, like, that's the same three-legged stool, but like, the combination of a much more severe mandate, so that like, it's never a good deal to pay the fine. Right. With, and one reason why it's never a good deal to pay the fine is that the premium is way lower. Right, exactly. And I'm not, I'm not, I would, like, would the mandate have been so unpopular, right? If, like, if the alternative to being fined was you pay $1,600 and you get comprehensive health insurance. But the only way to get there, and I think this is, like, I think we're going to talk a lot about the differences between the systems. Well, the thing they have all in common is they're regulating the health care prices. Like, I, I don't think, <laughs> like, at all, there are a lot of differences. But if you look at all these countries, they, they're all stepping in. And the reason you can, like, cap premiums at that amount is because the healthcare just costs less than it does here. I, I mean, I guess you could have done, like, a much more expensive— if you wanted to create that cap in the United States, it would just be so much more expensive to provide those benefits than it would would be in the Netherlands. So it—I mean, that almost drives home to me in a way. Like, sure, it's about the deductibles and it's about the size of the mandate, but I think at the heart of it is the, is the prices. Like, I've harped on this on the weeds before. This is not new. Yeah. But, like, the prices make it so, so, so much harder to create a cap like the one they have in the Netherlands. Right. And they actually, so in 2006, they introduced this new scheme for universal private health insurance. Does it but have, I, like, a catchy name? Not that I'm aware of. Uh. And if there's a good one in Dutch, I would horribly is mangle it. It took me, uh, it took me a while to even get down pronouncing the name of the city that I was in. What's the name so of the city? It was Nijmegen. Uh, I mean, okay. I can't judge oh, if yeah. you're doing that right or not, but um, it sounds like right. So, yeah. So, 2006, we introduced this new private insurance scheme. But they were worried after that that health spending was increasing too quickly. And so, in 2012, they introduced a new cost containment program, the core of which was global budgets. Like, basically, each of the individual health insurers would operate a global budget under kind of guidance provided by the government. And if health spending started to increase too quickly after that, then the government had the power to, like, step in and impose spending cuts um, to keep costs down. So, yes, to your point, Sarah, I think one of the critical differences here is they have a more sort of 
holistic approach to trying to constrain healthcare costs than we do in the United States. And so then what what happens, right? Like in terms of like the the old timey uh, right wing like bugaboos about universal programs, like is there a lot of is there like a lot of rationing? Is there like a government committee telling you, you know, you can't get some kinds of treatments? Um, like what's there is like so there's like the gu- Dutch. Health care authority, which, like, in conjunction with the providers and the insurers, helps to set, like, these annual spending caps mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I think it's important to note that, like— I mean, the, if you can't pay annual spending, I guess my point is, right, like, somebody at some point—for the cap to be efficacious, right. somebody has to be mm-hmm. like, I would like something. And then somebody else has to be like, right. no, Because you heard about, like, go in, over ta- in Taiwan, like, you know, certain drugs. And I think right. this is true in the U.K. It, it might come up in the U.K. story I know one of your right. colleagues is working <laughs> on. Is that those expensive medications, like, that's often one of the big trade-offs. You have these expensive medications and the government is just going to say it's not right. if you Well, if, if, you, if, you, if the government's going to negotiate price controls, they have to be able to say as no. many people on the left think they yes. should, you sometimes have to walk away. Yes. Right. So I think that has been a little bit less of a problem. And it's it's just not something I came up much in my reporting on the Netherlands, I think in part because they do try to impose cost-sharing on patients to prevent overutilization. So I th- as a way, I think, of making sure that, like, spending for the program overall remains manageable. So it's not just imposing, imposing these spending caps and then everybody sort of has free reign to try to get as much health care as they well, want. They try to manage it at the patient level, And it's interesting you see that, like, in a lot of the countries you're writing about. And I think that's one of the things that hasn't really come up as much in our single-payer debate is the idea that you can have universal systems where you still have to pay when you go to the doctor. Right. You know, I've talked to Bernie Sanders about this, and he just has a very strong philosophical objection to this. He feels like nobody should pay any money when they go to the doctor. That's how the Canadian system works. And when, you know, I've asked him about, well, you know, why not? You know, one, he doesn't want it discouraging anyone from getting health care. And two, he thinks like the administrative work around, you know, collecting a $10 copay from a billionaire just isn't worth like that $10. Why build the administrative system where you have to check people's income, see who has to pay copay, who's, you know, too low income to pay? But you do see most of the countries, I think, is it the case of all the countries you've written about of some level? There's some level of, of cost sharing. sharing. Yeah. So I think Canada's kind of an outlier in not doing cost-sharing, but Canada shapes our debate so much that the main proposal we talk about, the Sanders proposal that, you know, Senator Warren has signed on, it eliminates any sort of, you know, payment at the time of service, which is different from the countries you've been to. And what struck me about the Netherlands was sort of how rationally the insurance benefits were designed. So, like, Mm -hmm. going to your general practitioner is generally— pretty much free. You have a you can you will do have like a copay for medications, that kind of thing. But if you go to the hospital or the emergency room, you have like a $400 deductible that you'd have to pay first before your insurance benefits kick in. And that I think like that is just in the in terms of the way they've designed insurance benefits, how they've tried to encourage. And like you if you you can't go if you go to a specialist without getting a referral from your GP, your insurance won't cover it, or you'll have like a higher out of pocket cost, that kind of thing. And Can so I have a question about insurance in the Netherlands. Mm. I think you're the person to ask. One of the things I've always wondered about these like multi-payer systems, like Germany and the Netherlands and Switzerland. What are the insurers like? What what are the insurers actually? doing? Are they competing? Are their benefits different in some way? I'm wondering if I'm like Dutch Sarah shopping for health insurance. How am I—because I know they're tightly regulated, right? Yeah. Like, what 
What's actually different, and like, are they bringing any value, or are they just like another layer? So right, you go to healthcare.me, <laughs> right? And like, <laughs> you go shopping, and like, yeah. what do you find? I will say, my impression is that like, a lot of Dutch patients don't like think of themselves as like active shoppers for okay. health insurance. Like, several of the people I met said, like, yeah, I ended up in this plan like five years ago, and I'm just still in it because there aren't that many noticeable differences between okay. like the insurance benefits. So like those deduct those annual deductibles are set by the government. And like is the cost share, like the copays are those sent copays by are set by the government. Um, there is a little bit of choice in that like if you want to pay a smaller monthly premium, like if you're a younger person who doesn't think you'll use a lot of healthcare, you can do that in exchange for having like a higher deductible. Okay. Like they'll take it up to like I think it's about. 900 euros if you want uh-huh. uh, in exchange for your lower premium. And the insurers do contract with particular providers, like they create networks. Oh, but there are extreme limits on how much patients can be char- charged for out of network care. So it's all like, my sense was like, they basically have these various multi, you know, nonprofit insurers to administer the program, but they aren't like necessarily in sort of like some kind of fierce competition for each with one another trying to edge edge the others out. Like partially it's just breaking down broken down by geography. You know, this insurer covers that area, that insurer covers the other. The other thing, you know, that that I think is a relevant difference that in retrospect the ACA architect should have thought about harder is that like one thing we've seen in the marketplaces is that the multiplayer competition is much more functional in places with high population densities, mm. right? Because when you have a lot of people, you have a lot of providers. So you can have multiple overlapping provider networks, right? And the Netherlands is the most densely populated uh, advanced country, right? So so Nijmegen is like not the largest city in the Netherlands. No. Not even close. It's like a little bit of a small town by Dutch standards. It's as dense as Los Angeles. Right. <laughs> um, in terms of its its population. Um, and like not far from Amsterdam. Yeah. Right? Like if you needed a major surgery and so you had to go all the way to the biggest city in the country. It's an hour and a half by train. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of terrain in which the ACA is working its best. Yeah. Right? And so if you were looking at that and trying to apply it to a giant, very sparsely populated country, one thing in retrospect you should have thought about is, like, how is this going to work in Wyoming? Yeah. Right? Because, like, you can get within Wyoming further from whatever the biggest city in Wyoming is uh, than you can from Amsterdam. Yeah. And the biggest city in Wyoming is way smaller. Right. Than than Amsterdam, right? And, like, that's a huge— problem, right? Like, if you're in a small town and you're three hours away from a medium-sized city, then, like, how much provider competition, you know, would realistically ever exist for it? Right. And that was something that humbled me at the beginning of reporting out this whole project, like, realizing that, you know, translating policies from other places to here is not going to be very easy. And it's a, a fickle exercise. And, like, in my mind, it's much more of sort of, like, you can talk thematically and sort of like look at values. And I think that it's interesting to see how these individual policy works, but it's obviously not as simple as yet, just like transposing what the Dutch or the Taiwanese or the Australians do onto the U.S. One of the things I find so hard about, you know, bringing these policies back here, like you look at, I like thinking of your series as almost like a menu of options. Of like mm. there's so many different ways you could build a single payer system. But one of the things I think about more lately is the fact we let our system get so entrenched and so big. Like, I think in the stories of yours I've read so far, 
none of these healthcare systems were like nearly as robust. Like everyone tackled this a little earlier. I mean, yeah. I guess I mean you wrote about Taiwan, and they're probably the most recent country to build a single payer system, but they did it at this point like nearly. 30 Nearly years? 30 years ago. Although I learned today that I th- it looks like Kenya is kind of rolling out a new oh. universal health care program. <laughs> but I don't have a ton to share about that because oh. I just <laughs> learned about it Future today. Weeds episode. <laughs> Good for you, Kenya. Uh, but it seems like that's one of those things that you run up against is, is even in the cases where there was already – there was organized medicine, there was opposition. It just wasn't quite as strong, whereas something like we have to contend with both – in terms of the political cloud, and just we've built this whole system that's, like, structured around a certain level of prices and a certain way of doing things, it makes me wonder whether, like, you can actually go back to the 1960s when most of these systems are being built right. and do the things that were done then. It seems like it's a much bigger hurdle to get to um, get to something like any of the systems you're writing about with such a such an entrenched system that we have now. Yeah, and I mean, I do think each of these systems is certainly a reflection of of their political history, but sort of a commonality across those histories is that, like, it was a real crisis that forced these governments to act. So, like, in Taiwan, they had, they had two things happening. They had both, like, a 40% uninsured rate, so just, like, a real sort of, like, practical problem that needed to be solved. But at the same time, like, this was in the mid-1980s. They were starting to introduce, like, democratic reforms. They were going to have their first presidential elections. And so the authoritarian government that had been in charge for a long time looked around, looked at, like, what their pro- progressive opposition was talking about and was like, you know, maybe we we should try to like fix the healthcare we system gotta, like, before problem, before right? people vote. Right. Um, and like there is this huge problem to solve. Or like in the Netherlands, they had had this two tier system for a long time, but according to like the experts that I talked to, it was sort of like it had become untenable, and it sort of forced the government's hand to try to do something to fix it. I thought it was so. There's this one line you had in the Taiwan story about. Um, how when it was introduced, what oh people, everybody hated everybody it. Everybody hate like they were um, <laughs> treating it like a funeral. What was oh it? yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the like in the room where the legislature meets when they were passing the single payer bill, these protesters who mostly came from labor unions because labor unions were the ones who had health insurance before they introduced single payer for the most part. They were the only ones. They came in and there's like this funeral rite where like you burn the special kind of money, like in a temple or something. And so they brought that money into the parliament and, like, threw it on the floor. As as one of the guys I talked to put it, like, this is sort of the most severe form of protest. Well, and I thought that was so interesting. It reminded me of um, one of the last stories I wrote at Vox about how the Canadian doctors in Saskatchewan, they went on strike when their Mm. system was created. And then I fell down, like, a bit of a research rabbit hole, like, saying, like— And it seems like a lot of these systems, when they're actually created— they're not that popular. Like, like public opinion is kind of where it is in the U.S. now around Medicare for All when these systems get passed. I think in your story you said public opinion polls showed that most people actually opposed, opposed it. it. when it launched, I was looking yeah. out. Like I said, I fell down a rabbit hole. I was looking at, like, U.K. public opinion, and there's yeah. not a lot from, like, the 1940s. But there's some that suggest people weren't jazzed about the birth of the NHS. In Saskatchewan, people were really fraught. I looked up there's in Belgium there was a big doctor strike. Um, so it really— It's interesting to me, you know, there is a crisis that forces it, but it seems like in a lot of these countries that, like, now love their healthcare systems and, like, in, you know, Britain, it's, like, the crown jewel of the country. At the time that it's done, there's always a ton of public opposition. Like, it's never, like, the country is, like, unified around, like, wanting this. Okay, let's let's take a break, then come back and back up, because if we're we're now talking about Taiwan, so we should should explain Taiwan more clearly. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Okay, so uh, we started to get into this, but uh, t- Taiwan is an interesting case because Americans don't talk about Taiwan a lot. And when they do, it's usually about, like, hypothetical war with China. Um, <laughs> but this is closest to, like, the political revolution scenario, right? Like, yes. they were bopping along for a while. And then at some point in the mid-'80s, uh, they were like, nope, we should have a single-payer system. And they yep. just completely redid it, right? Yep. And the way everybody got health care, the way everyone in the health care industry had to work was just like all turned on its head and yep. so like it's a it's a kind of weird story like how how did this happen so yeah to back up before single payer Taiwanese healthcare was certainly broken. So right. there was like a 40% uninsured rate. Uh, there were labor insurance f- plans for like fishermen, farmers, government workers, but they didn't cover dependents. So you had a lot of uninsured elderly people, a lot of uninsured children. And so that was sort of the underlay. You know, people would go bankrupt because of medical expenses. We actually learned that apparently like in the 1970s, uh, out- egregious healthcare costs were like a common trope on Taiwanese soap operas. Like, it was that kind of embedded in the culture that, like, healthcare is a mess and unaffordable. So this is, like, if you imagine, like, Social Security Act of, of 1965 right, this sounds like never very happened. Pre-Medicare, pre-Medicare. This sounds like yeah. the scenario around Medicare and Medicaid. I think that's right. Right. So, right. so it's like if Medicare and Medicaid had been, like, filibustered to death. Right. And, and those, and, like, the problems we have, but, like, also you those problems yeah, yeah. that were Older, solved. People can, old people, poor people, lingering for kids. for another twenty years into the future, right? And then you get a push for a bigger reform. Yeah, and like I said, I think that was as much sort of uh, the nationalist government, you know, seeing democracy coming around the corner and thinking like we sort of we need to uh, outflank the progressive opposition by introducing a national healthcare system. So they went about it very deliberately, like they just started convening a bunch of meetings with like 
healthcare experts from around the world, the most notable of whom was uh, Uva Reinhardt, who was married to uh, Mei Cheng, who is, she is still with us. Uva has died, uh, but Mei is Taiwanese. Um, and so they, br- they, he was among sort of the foreign contingent that they had brought in to advise them on what kind of healthcare system they should set up. They kind of put, as I, as May told the story, it's like they literally at one of these meetings just kind of put the question to Uve, like, what is the best healthcare system? Like, what should we build? And he and May talked about it for a couple days, like while they were in their hotel room. And he came back and he was like, single payer is the way to go. It's the most efficient system, going to be the most equitable system. Apparently, they didn't really like quite understand what he meant. So he came up with this metaphor of a single pipe and like drew a diagram of it and everything to explain like there's this one pipe where all the payments for health insurance or healthcare are going to go through to cover everybody. And after that, you know, as May put it, like they left Taiwan, not quite sure what what was going to happen. But then somebody from the Taiwanese government called like six months later and was like, that sounds good to us. That's what we're going to do. And so then they had, you know, they had a, a long legislative fight. And then to me, the most absurd thing is so this bill, this single-payer bill passes in 1994, and then the uh, government that's been in charge for decades decides that rather than roll it out around 2000 like they were originally planning, they moved it all the way up to 1995 because they're like, we need to get this done and get this out of the way ahead of the first popular elections in 1996. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of became this sort of like mad dash to try to get a, a single-payer healthcare system up and running in literally, like, a year. But for the most part, it seems like they succeeded, I think. But this is also, like, a transition, a, a, a military dictatorship. Yes. Uh, no, but lay, when you laying look, the groundwork for a transition look, to democracy. But when you look back at uh, Medicare and Medicaid, it was the same timeline. Like, there's yeah. a year between it being signed and it rolling out. And I think it shows, like, um, but then you have, like, healthcare.gov, which had four years and, like, did not roll out very well. I think it shows, like, that these things are feasible when the program is very simple. You know, with, like, healthcare.gov, it's, like, you have to figure out what subsidies people are eligible for and the machine didn't work. But even in, like, the non-military dictatorship of the United States, like, they got millions of people insured and, you know, actually rolled out Medicare very, very smoothly in 1966. um, I, I did a story ages ago when I was at the Post kind of reading back over old news clippings around this. And there's a lot of fear, like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? Are seniors going to overwhelm our hospitals? And it was just kind of fine. Like, you yeah. just have to go out and find the old people well, that was and the give thing. them insurance cards. Also, mm-hmm. if, you, if you go back and, and listen to the uh, administrative burden episode of The Weeds, I also talk about the uh, initial rollout of Social Security in, mm. in the United States, which, given the analog technology of the time, seemed quite daunting. Uh, but they actually did it really fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, but part of it, that, right, was like, um, it was it was just like, well, would you like to get this money yeah. from the government? Right. right. And so, like, people did. No, the same did, with Medicare. Right? Like, would you like so, this free health so, insurance So there wasn't, there the wasn't, I mean, obviously there was administrative work to be done, but there wasn't, like, a ton of, like, well, how are we going to hunt people down and, like, force them to collect their Social Security checks, yeah, right? Because right. they people just wanted it. Yeah, yeah. Some of the officials I talked to who were around at the time, like, while this program was being stood up, said, like, their go-to move was to go to meet with, like, the matriarch of a family, like grandma or somebody, and be like, hey, we're introducing this new health insurance program. It's going to be great. Get all of your grandkids and your kids to sign up for it. And so I think in the first year they had, remember, they had a 40% uninsured rate. I think by launch, they had covered, they had gotten 90, 92% of people, like, an insurance card. And then over the next couple of years, they got all the way up to 99.9. But how are you going to pay for that, well, 
Um, I mean, so this is one of those things where it's like, I, I feel like the Taiwanese had to have benefited from sort of how, in a way, from how bad their system was before. So uh-huh. it was less about like, how are we going to like redirect all this existing healthcare funding and try to capture it so we can create a Medicare for uh-huh. All program here? It was more about like, we just need to build like a new revenue stream that mm-hmm. doesn't exist. And so what the Taiwanese have done is they have payroll-based premiums towards which both employers and employees contribute. And it varies depending on like what industry you're in, what your income level is. That's what industry you're in? Yeah, it that's varies weird. across. Um, it varies a little bit. I, I don't know if that's just a reflection of the different you know, incomes that those uh, uh, professions generally expect. But the way I saw it brought down was like for, yeah, like farmers or farmers are probably a bad example, but for like government workers, they pay X. The government will pay their employer. The government will pay Y. Um, so they have that. That's where the bulk of the funding comes from. They have had to increase premiums a couple of times over the last twenty-five years. And then there's sort of a hodgepodge of like progressive income taxes and like levies on tobacco, alcohol, that kind of thing that make up. But the it's like, stream. but it's like the workhorse is like a payroll tax. Yeah, that right. middle class people pay. That middle class people pay. Yeah, technically contributions from them and their employers, but sure. that's obviously. But, like, also, how high is it? Because, I mean, this is going to loop back to Sarah's point about the prices, right? Like, like how much, you know, like, share of, of GDP is going into this system? So, right. So, Taiwan spends, like, 6% of its GDP on healthcare, right. which is, like, a third of what the U.S. is. And, and, I, and critically, that is less than what the public sector in the United States currently <laughs> pays, right? So, right. so like, Taiwanese taxes for their government-run health oh, insurance yeah. are less right. than American health care taxes right now. for Medicare, Medicaid, ACA subsidies. Right. That's generally true, I think, for most countries. I know this is one of Ezra's favorite charts, is, like, the chart showing our public spending. And I think we'd spend more per capita than almost on public everybody. spending than and almost everybody. So, so Switzerland and Norway are the exceptions. But most of those countries also have privates, right? So it's it's like Taiwan has a wholly government-funded system. Yeah. But, like, not just, like, it'll save you money in the, like, aggregate share of GDP, right? right? Like, it, it, so put it another way, right? If when Elizabeth Warren stands up and is like, I'm going to cover everybody— and what she needed was to write down how she was going to get 6% of GDP. Mm-hmm. Like, that'd be easy. Like, we, <laughs> no we, we wouldn't have had all these podcast episodes right. and, like, tedious debates. Like, 6% of GDP is easy. Right. You just take the existing uh, taxes for Medicare and Medicaid, and you're just like, they're going into this pipe. Yeah, and right. Done. I will say the most interesting idea I came, or one of the most interesting ideas I came off, uh, came across in the Taiwan story was this idea that basically— Taiwan actually underfunds its healthcare system. Like, their biggest problem is provider capacity. Like, because there's such low cost sharing, people go to the doctor a lot, people go to the hospital a lot. They aren't particularly, they don't exercise a much discretion in terms of where they end up seeking care. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the response to that potentially would be to increase funding so that you can, you know, pay more to providers to increase the capacity on the supply side. But obviously, that would mean increasing taxes, increasing cost sharing. Well, and just to give a sense of this magnitude, because I wanted to look, I was looking at this one figure while you were talking. So I think I remember from your story, it's like Taiwanese people pay like an average of a 5%-ish payroll tax. So when Vermont was working on their single payer, the numbers they came up with, and these are eventually the numbers that killed the whole scheme, was that they would need to increase payroll taxes by 11.5% and income taxes by 9%. And like when those numbers came out, the thing was essentially 
dead. But that gives you kind of a ballpark of if you want to build a single-payer system with American prices. And, like, I think you're right. It sounds like from reading your story that maybe Taiwan could, like, bump up a little bit and their system would run a little bit better. But that would be nowhere near the ballpark of the tax increases that we're talking about, that Elizabeth Warren has to come up, that, like, Bernie Sanders has to be asked about. It is just such a different magnitude when you're dealing with with the prices that we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, because right now you there's a 2.9% payroll tax for Medicare, Yeah, right? So if you could get Medicare for all from a 5% payroll tax, and then the whole big, like, well, how are you going to pay for it is I'm going to increase payroll taxes by 1.1%. I, I mean, not to say there wouldn't be political pushback, because, like, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, politics. It's different from, it's, like, it's a hard. 9 or 11%. I, 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 think, I think you would say that the, that the Medicare for all people would have a strong winning hand. Right. If the pay for was a 1.1% payroll tax increase, the difficulty is that they have maybe a 15%, right? Like that, that that's a different ballgame. But so do the Taiwanese like are there are there long waiting lines? Like what what how do these capacity constraints like manifest? Didn't you say people go to the doctor a lot there? People go to the doctor a ton. Um they actually do do quite well in terms of wait times for like hip replacement surgery, cardiac surgeries. They actually outperform, like, Canada and the UK. I think it is more sort of like they're worried about their provider workforce being depleted. So, like, already Taiwan, in terms of, like, doctors per capita, basically, has a much lower rate than, like, the OECD average. They have fewer nurses than other OECD countries. Um, And, like, especially in, like, more rural areas, there's a shortage of, like, primary care providers, specialists, that kind of thing. So, like, it's – there are those sort of – how are people of, going to the doctor if the doctors don't exist? If the doctors don't exist. So the government has tried to address that problem through, like, a rural health care program that they've okay. set up that, like, basically pays doctors to both be stationed in these health clinics in rural townships across the country and also to do, like, sort of these roving mobile clinics that will, like, go up into the mountains and see, like, aboriginal villages, patients there, that kind of thing. And are they just paid less? They're doctors? They're, so this is like poor a— doctors? Yeah, I mean, they are definitely paid less, yes. Um, and so, and they've seen, like—it's hard. it's been hard to put numbers on it, but there is definitely a, like, prevailing concern about a brain drain where, like, Taiwanese doctors are just leaving the yeah. country to go practice elsewhere. I've definitely they can met be, Taiwanese doctors here. Who, who left? Okay. Yeah. I don't know if—did they say they went left because they hated the national health insurance or no? Did you get into that? In your <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't, I yeah. didn't do extensive interviews. Okay. Get their, get their takes. But that was that's, like, an overarching <laughs> concern. Like, I met a doctor who, like, used to pack— used to be a pediatrician and has shifted more and more of his practice to, like, cosmetic surgeries and stuff that are paid for privately by patients. So I think that is more— that is, like, how—that is the concern. The patients actually haven't experienced, especially in, like, the highly urbanized areas where most Taiwanese people live, mm-hmm. don't necessarily experience, like, a lack of access. But the worry is that the the system is putting so much pressure on providers that they're going to—that capacity is just going to continue to shrink. Well, I, I think it's something single-payer advocates think about here. Like, I think I've had a number of kind of interesting conversations with um, Adam Gaffney at the— I'm going to get his acronym wrong. The Physicians Physicians for, for National, National Health Care Plan. There you go. Great. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> See, this, is, this is why I need you here for podcasting. 
And we've had this conversation about, you know, he doesn't feel and other single-payer advocates don't feel like you need the insurance companies. You can eliminate them. But you do need the hospitals and you do need the doctors. And you're kind of trying to figure out this balance of, yes, we want to cut the prices, but we don't want to see hospitals <laughs> closing. And we don't want to see pediatricians, like, going into plastic surgery because um, pediatrics isn't paying enough. And I think that's one of those, you know, tricky balances and thinking through, like, yes, we want a system that costs less, but how much can we cut costs while keeping rural hospitals up and running and keeping doctors thinking, like, keeping students thinking they want to train doctors? So, I th- you know, when we've had this conversation, it has kind of shaped how I think about, you know, well, what is the goal and how much can you cut while maintaining the services or maintaining the services that you think are valuable to the American healthcare system? Right. And I do think Taiwan is still sort of like rising up to meet what I think would be sort of a more rational level of cost sharing, especially that would encourage a more rational use of healthcare. Like the director general of the National Health Insurance Program said, like after this presidential election that they just had, like I'm going to pitch the new government on increasing co-pays because, because not just as like a revenue raiser, but because it's not sustainable to keep pushing, putting these pressure on providers. As a sort of, right, right. As a, as a demand Right, as a constraint on demand, Um, exactly. Which is the typical, even even in single-payer systems, right? So, like, it's almost comical how low, like, Swedish co-pays are, but they're not zero, right? And they're close enough to zero. You're talking, like, $5 to go see a GP. They're, like, they're obviously not raising meaningful revenue out of this, like, nickel and dime co-payments. The philosophy is that it's like, you know, if you ever go to Ben and Jerry's on free ice cream cone day, (laughs) the line is like a billion things long, right? And if you just make it cheap, it turns out it's like, okay, only so many people like want ice cream on any given day. And I know like the Canadians of the Brits and Bernie Sanders have like a strong philosophical objection to that idea, but it is the most common sort of way of of implementing this kind of thing. I I wonder on the provider side, because it's like, I think the rural issue, which I think we should talk about in Australia, because Australia is very rural, and the like training issue are almost distinct, right? Because like, I think you could make the argument that the average quality of American doctors is too high. (laughs) That like, if you look at their MCAT scores, like it's gone up over the years, as more women have entered the profession, and the aggregate number of doctors hasn't gone up. And it's not obvious that, like, the benefits of that are commensurate to the incredibly high prices that we pay. So right? maybe and, we just need some mediocre, cheaper doctors. Well, <laughs> so I mean, look, if you cut the reimbursement <laughs> rates, like, it's true, like, the desirability of going to medical school mm-hmm. might go down, but it's really hard to get into medical school right now. So you're not talking about nobody would be trained as a doctor. They might just be, like, at the average MCAT score of 1970s doctors, but with modern technology, and it would be way cheaper. And, and like, that could be fine, right? Whereas the, well, will all the doctors just abandon rural America is a bigger problem because, like, the the U.S. is much larger than Taiwan. Like, we can't, like, mobile health vans based in Chicago cannot serve, like, the entire U.S. heartland. Like, you actually need doctors yeah. and, and like, hospitals, right? They need, like, giant machines and, like, expensive operations all throughout the, the country. And, I mean, I know, like, Sanders' team is obviously aware of rural states because he's from Vermont, and they, they have provisions about that. But, I mean, it, working it out in detail strikes me as hard. Yeah. Because uh, America's 
That's where that's sort of like, yeah, a uniquely American challenge. Like, I think it's telling that in Taiwan and Australia particularly, they have set up sort of like specialized rural healthcare delivery programs. Like, Australia has a system that basically kind of like pays doctors basically to go practice in areas that are underserved right now. Right. And then Taiwan has set up this uh, this kind of system of clinics and like roving mobile units um, for especially like their indigenous populations. But like, yeah, they're just, they're dealing with a problem on a much smaller scale of what the U.S. is going to have to deal with. Well, so let's, let's take another break and, and turn to turn I want to talk about Australia. Australia. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right. These days we mostly hear about Australia because it's on fire. Uh, But it's also – Australia, I feel like, never gets talked about in the U.S. health policy context, Mm. even though – Oh, but it should. It's just like it's such – so when I think of Australia, and I'm so glad you did this story because I've been waiting for someone to do this story. (laughs) It's like this – it feels like it's the one that speaks the most to the American ethos to me of if we were to do single payer because everyone gets like some base coverage. But then you can cut the line or get something nicer if you want to pay – more. And it's really surprised me. I mean, maybe it's just because it's like eons away. Um, but it surprised me that the Australian system hasn't come up really at all in the American debate. Like, I could have seen a moderate— Well, because Australia is like the United States, right? Like, it's this giant, mostly empty country. Mm-hmm. It's, like, founded by these, like, genocidaires who stole all the land from mm-hmm. the indigenous population. Um, you know, they're very, like— Rustic, yeah, frontiers, individualistic, kind of right? Like mm-hmm. they, nobody, nobody should tell you, like, no, you can't do that, right? right? Right. So they just give you something, right? And it's like this low tier health. Well, and you could see like a Pete Buttigieg or Joe Biden in an alternative world saying, like, yeah, I think everyone should have the base thing, and if you want more, like, if you want to keep your plan, you keep paying for it. It, it feels interesting to me that it has not entered. The American debate. So, so, so how does it work? What, yeah. what is it? Right. Does so, it work? <laughs> does it work? That is the the great unanswered question. So Australia has does have a universal public health insurance program called Medicare that every Australian citizen is eligible for. And so you have the government will pay for your care. You can go to public hospitals to get your care. That's sort of the baseline that's available to everyone. On top of that is a private health insurance system and about – Half of people take out private health insurance, mostly concentrated in the higher income brackets. And you get some perks, to Sarah's point, um, with that private health insurance. Like, you can go to private hospitals, for starters, um, or you can be treated at a public hospital as a private patient. 
And you can get like, you know, you can get your own room, you get more choice about your provider, you get more choice, you can cut the line for waiting times for elective surgeries. The food is yeah, um, it goes all the way. It goes all the way from yeah, those the big things like your care to the little things, like yeah, the food that you get. And I mean, this is how public services in general work in the United States, right? Like everybody can go to public school, but like a rich five to ten percent of the population goes to private school. Right. Everybody can go to the library, but a bigger than the group of people who go to, to private school um, buy books at bookstores. Uh, a lot of people do both yeah. sometimes, depending on what the situation is. Um, you know, there's computers to use there for free, which is nice, but like I have my own computer, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is also nice. Um, like there's a city bus network and mass transit in D.C., but a lot of people in D.C. own cars and drive them around. Right, I mean, yeah. it's it, it, it's it's just like not how we normally think about healthcare, but like it actually is how we think about. Well, and it's like kind of common. Like I was surprised at some a little while ago, I learned that in the UK they have a similar system, but in about like ten to fifteen percent of um, Brits buy private coverage. It's much lower. Yeah, but it's interesting. The country I think of is like the most nationalized. Like the hospitals are part of the government, that they also have this private option. But I think what's so interesting about Australia, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this, is it seems like the government, at least in some periods, really actively encourages people to get the private insurance. Like, there's penalties, right, if you don't buy the private insurance by a certain age, which reminded me, like, a little bit of, like, mandate-esque sort of um, health economics. Yeah, and I think that's what distinguishes the Australian system is, like, they have a, yeah, heavily incentivized private health industry, not just, like, something that's available if you want it. Like, they're pushing people to sign up. So, I mean, the story there is back in the 1980s, they set up their Medicare program, this universal public health insurance program. It had largely been private health insurance before that. So they introduced a universal public program in the mid-80s, and private insurance coverage, which had been up in like 60-70%, started to drop off precipitously. So by like the mid-1990s, only like 30% of Australians had private health insurance. And so the conservative government that was in charge at the time saw that. They were like, this is not in line with our market-driven economic principles. And they said, you know, sort of, they said like, we're worried that the public system is going to become overwhelmed if like everybody ends up there. And so they created carrots and sticks to encourage more people to take up private health insurance and therefore to seek medical care in private hospitals and other private settings. And so what those look like are like, if your income is above a certain level, you have to take out private insurance or you pay a fine. It's basically like a light version of an individual mandate. Uh, They try to encourage younger people to sign up before they turn 30 because after you once you turn 31, you can be charged like a small surcharge for being older when you first sign up for coverage. And for certain like kind of middle class families, there are also like subsidies, tax rebates available, encouraging those folks to uh, sign up. Um, and so like, yeah, they've kind of created this complex scheme um, to it try to encourage— It almost the way you describe it, it sounds like Obamacare perched on top of single payer. Yes, I think that's a, a fair way to think about it, actually. Um, and it has been, like, the whole thing has been sort of this, like, tug of war between, like, cons- again, being a reflection of the political history between, like, conservatives and liberals. The It was the left-leaning governments that brought in the public programs. Other than labor, the conservatives are called the liberal It's very, conser- it's very confusing. Very confusing. Um, Can I ask you a question, though? Because something <laughs> I hear from sometimes from single-payer advocates here in the States is that they feel like the private insurance markets in Australia are eroding the public market. And you mentioned in the Netherlands, right, they felt like this two-tier system wasn't Wasn't working. working. Like, are they working together? Is there risks of, like, the private 
um, the because I could see like the private insurance market siphoning off like the good doctors right. and like you have long wait times in the public system, but the rich people in the private system are getting better coverage. Like, are the is it felt that like the two are working together? I mean, in the aggregate, yes. Like, it should be it should be made clear that like Australian has Australia has like world class healthcare. Like, if you look at some of the metrics that try to measure for like you know how well a country does at intervening and preventing deaths that should be affordable with timely medical care, like Australia does, amazing. Um, so, like, I think in the aggregate, it works. There are these weird sort of like conflicting concerns that I don't quite know how to so. On the one hand, there's actually like a private a crisis for private health insurance right now because more and more people are dropping their private coverage, especially huh. like younger people, because they have this like underlying free, more or less free public alternative. And so they're like, why would I pay a couple hundred bucks you know, a month for a private health insurance plan when I can just get care for free in the public plan? So that's on the one – that's kind of on the one hand. On the other hand, though, there are concerns raised that like – a lot of doctors split their time between the public and private systems, but the private system offers a lot of advantages for doctors, both in terms of like, you know, the caseload's both like easier and you get more time with your patients. Like I talked to a I talked to a surgeon who did both work at the major trauma unit in Melbourne and also at a private hospital. And he was like, I used to kind of like love the buzz of working in the emergency room and not knowing what was going to come through the front door at the public hospital, but like that started to wear on me now. I'm getting in middle age. I've got, like, three kids. And so the work I get to do at the private hospital where I could spend, like, a year with this patient who's going to need orthopedic surgery just sounds so much more appealing. And there was this report that came out last summer that kind of laid bare all the underlying problems with the private health insurance industry right now. And one of the concerns they raised is, like, we're spending all of this money to subsidize the private health insurance mark, uh, private private health insurance, and at the same time, like we are basically encouraging doctors to work in the more in the private healthcare market because it pays better because it has you know a more you know basically all, all the time they spend at the private um, hospitals is less time they're spending in the public hospitals, and there are like disparate wait times between the public and private settings. So it's it's weirdly both like. Private health insurance is in trouble because of the underlying public universal public program, but the private insurance industry and private healthcare industry also drains resources away from the public mm -hmm. system. Here's what I, what, what I like about the Australian system conceptually, though, is that like I feel like the underlying theory of like UK healthcare or Canadian healthcare, right, is this this notion very mid-century vision, like almost heroic vision of healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. That like healthcare is really, really difficult, right? And also incredibly valuable, right? So we need to make it like free for everybody and exactly equal for everybody because it's like, it's so important, right? It's, it's, it's so critical. And I, I think what we see now with like modern technology and modern research is that like the most genuinely valuable healthcare tends to be fairly easy, mm. right? Like you're doing screenings, you're giving people vaccines, you get a strep test and then you get antibiotics for it. And like that does not require like state of the art like medical science. Mm. Like it, it can be provided in a pretty regularized way. But then also that there's like a big – market for healthcare, like, as a service. Mm. Like, people just care a lot about, like, 
their doctor and like, how is it? And how did it feel to go into this place? And how reassured do I feel? And, you know, like we're all parents of, of young kids. And it's like, sometimes you just like want to talk it through with your pediatrician, right? And you look back in retrospect and it's like, well, if they had just totally ignored this illness, like your kid would be fine. Yeah. Like you, people just mostly get better. But like I was stressed out and like I, I was really glad that my like fancy private pediatrician mm-hmm. was like, it's going to be okay, man. <laughs> you know, like that just like meant a lot to me, right? Yeah. And so like I cared, right? And I would find it incredibly frustrating if, like, a low ceiling was placed on the amount of healthcare that I was able to purchase for my family. Yeah. Even though looking back on it, I don't think there is any circumstance in which me having spent extra money on healthcare for my family actually generated better health outcomes. Right. I just, like, but it meant a lot to me, right? Yeah. And so the combination of, like, everybody gets the basic health care, which is genuinely very useful mm-hmm. and can be provided cheaply. Mm-hmm. But, like, also, if you just, like, want nicer health care, like, you can get it. Yeah. The, it, like, it, to me, it, like, it, it reflects the realities of the situation. That, yeah. like, that, like, health care is a human right is, like, a very powerful idea. But, like, also, like, if I want more health care for my loved ones, I should be able to get it. Yeah. is a very powerful idea. Yeah. But also, there can't be infinite health care. Right. At public expense. And so it's like you give people so much and then you let people do what they want rather than the Canadian mentality, which is like because everybody has to get the exact same thing all the time. Like on the one hand, like people can't buy healthcare that they would like unless it would make sense to collectively buy it for everyone. And I'm like, why? Well, just to make clear, the situation in Canada is it is illegal to offer health insurance that competes with the the public plan. So those Australian plans, they— like, you are barred from from offering those, from doctors participating in those. It's a very, very different Right, because yeah. so, they're worried about this exactly. drainage and blah, 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 blah. So they're, like, saying, like, look, you don't really need this, right? Yeah. And so nobody can get it because, right. like, everyone is providing the necessary care all the time. And it's great. It's so good that everybody gets the necessary care. But, like, people with good reason, like, want unnecessary care. Yeah. Well, and one of the patients we talked to kind of— she she manages managed to have sort of like a foot in both camps in a way uh-huh. that I think is illustrative. So we met with two sisters, Madeline and Eloise, who one of whom Eloise had given birth in a public hospital. Madeline had given birth in a private hospital. And like the story walks through sort of the differences in their experiences. But to focus on Eloise, so when she was pregnant and needed both like prenatal care and to give birth, like she's a pretty like nonchalant person. She decided the public hospital would be fine, even though she had private health insurance. And, you know, it would be basically free. And, you know, even though she had to, like, share a room with other new moms and, like, the food wasn't very good. Like, it was fine, more or less, right? But then one of her kids has this rare bone disorder called Perthes disease, which basically means, like, his hip is almost kind of, like, crumbling. And he has to be in a wheelchair, and he needs surgery for that care. And so— once they got that diagnosis, diagnosis and were trying to figure out his treatment plan, they looked at the public hospitals and it was like, oh my God, we would have to wait like six months for him to get this surgery, which is like six months of him, you know, having to stay in a wheelchair, not being able to play, not being on his road to recovery. And so they decided to use their private health insurance to schedule surgery.
surgery much earlier. They were able to, like, match it up with this leave that Eloise's husband had coming up. And so, like, I think that sort of encapsulates nicely, like, you do have this public option that, like, is cheaper. And if you don't care that much about what the experience, you know, if you're just going to be at the hospital for a couple days when you are giving birth to your kid, it's going to be fine. But when you have this really serious medical condition and something where you really you want to have more control over your care and be able to like rush something because it's you know imperative for your child's just quality of life you're able to do it but i think that raises like the question that raises for me though and is like are there families in australia who like don't have the who who like could be in a similar scenario but but don't have the means to buy the private insurance because i think that's where you worry about the inequality of like there is some the alternative family out there in Australia who's at, you know, kid is the same disease, but they can't afford the private insurance. So they are having that like longer wait in the public system. Because you mentioned, I think that um, it's mostly high income people who are yeah. purchasing mm-hmm. the, the private insurance. Right. Well, yeah. And I think, yes, like that is sort of one of the trade-offs of setting up a, way, a system the way the Australians have is you are going to have various kinds of disparities that mm-hmm. persist, persist. They, I think, think it's worth it because they are trying to balance these values of like universal access and personal choice. But that does come at a cost. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just really what interests me about international health systems is they're and I can't tell if it's chicken or egg, like if these systems influenced how people think about healthcare or how people think about healthcare, like led to different systems. But mm. they really do like reflect such different values. Like yeah. the ones you picked, they kind of tell you something about what the country values and like how they do their policymaking. And I think Australia is one where the values seem to align like much more closer to American value. Like geography aside, which I agree is also, you know, an interesting similarity that how they think about it, just how Australians think about healthcare and the idea of buying your way to the front of the line feels like something Americans really value. And it is yeah. very hard for me to see like a Canadian or Taiwanese style system where all of us wait in the same queue, you know, being acceptable to to the American yeah. population. Well, when we did uh, focus groups with oh, yeah. uh, voters in late 2017, even talking to, like, Democratic voters mm-hmm. in suburban Washington, D.C., you would hear a lot, like, almost word for word, like, if I can afford more, I want to yeah. be able to get more. Mm-hmm. And I do think that is sort of a, yeah, like— Which is why it surprised me, Australia. Like, I, I hope I hope your story is the beginning of a, a boomlet of interest right. in Australia. Yeah, an Aussie, an Aussie renaissance. <laughs> no, because, I mean, it does seem like— Two things that, like, most—you could get most Americans to sign on for, right? Is that, like, there should be a guarantee level of healthcare provision for everybody. That, like, just because you're poor, like, if you're sick and you need healthcare, you should be able to get it. And then, conversely, it's, like, if you're not poor, if you're, like, sitting on a giant stack of money— and there's, like, something you want to get a doctor to do, and the doctor's willing to do it for you, like, you should be able— to do that. Yeah. Now, there shouldn't be some, like, abstract principle that's like, no, you're not allowed to purchase this healthcare service. Um, like, it's very—it it, it strikes me as, like, kind of genuinely un-American. And I, I do feel like the Canadians are, like— they have a reason for having designed the system that way, but I feel like their thinking about it is, like, shaped— around the existence of the system. Well, and and also, I mean, it's starting to face pushback. You start to see some lawsuits coming up through provincial courts where this is being challenged. I think it mostly comes from doctors who, like, want to operate outside the Mm -hmm. public system. So I think the time frame might be changing too, right? Like you said, like, you you have this, like, mid-century kind of idealistic vision of the same thing for everyone. 
even in Canada, you know, I think people there are generally very supportive of the healthcare system. And they named um, Tommy Douglas, the former premier of Saskatchewan, was named the greatest Canadian in a company um, who created the single-payer yeah. system. And I do um, think that, you know, but, geography is relevant here, too. Like, I think American conservatives, like, tend to wildly overstate the, like, Canadians coming south of the border mm-hmm. to get health care. Um, but it does happen you know, and, like, Canada is very close to the United States. Like, in particular, <laughs> its main population centers are all very close to the United States. So true edge cases, like, don't get tested under that system. Like, if you are a genuinely, like, very wealthy Canadian person right. and you sincerely have a really powerful desire to cut the line of your uh, hip replacement surgery, like, it's actually not hard to do that, even though it's not, like, quote-unquote allowed, right? Like, it, it's something to come to the U.S. Mm. and, like, get some luxury health care as a rich Canadian person is, like, very feasible. Yeah. And it means you don't quite have to, like, fight it out on the level of principle, whereas, like, Australia is the opposite, right? It's like this island in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like, you can't get anywhere from Australia. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to, like, prohibit something there is, like— Really Like, like that's a big deal, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, and I do think, like, for the problems that the private health insurance industry is enduring right now, like, you can see from their history, like— there are levers that you can pull, and like they, the, basically, it's just been an ongoing. As one expert I talked to put it, sort of like every eighteen months, there's a new policy about how to sort of like keep the private health insurance side viable. And like, but that's like that's they must fine. Have like that's how it works. Prime ministers, right? Like in the right, right. Which I think is part of the reason that like there's been there's a chart in the story that sort of shows various interventions in the health insurance market and. There are constant dots, right? On that chart. Although I mean, that's—I I mean, I don't know. Like you know, because you, you can sometimes say, right? It's like people like to like Google up and be like, "Here's how healthcare works in country X." But like, obviously, they have politics, like in all countries, right? And they and they do change things. Yeah. Um, and and particularly like countries that have more um, sort of middle ground. You, you know, it's like when you're in the middle between different polls, then it's like you're always going to be polled kind of one way or the other, depending on, like, yeah. who won the last election or what scandal happened to have hit. And this is a place where, like, ultimately the scope of sort of the Australian healthcare debate is pretty narrow. Like, uh-huh. everybody accepts the existence of Medicare. The liberals accept the existence of the private insurance industry. It's basically like a question of sort of, like, how do we strike this balance between the two? How do we, like, you know— try to provide, you know, penalties and and subsidies to keep the private insurance side sustainable without, like, draining the public side. But, like, that's just, like, sort of the very narrow calculus that they're trying to figure out, which I think is much different than the U.S., where, like, in a lot of ways, the political parties have, like, totally right. different but visions I mean, I think of how So we're at a place where we accept kind of Medicare and Medicaid, you know, as, like, like I mean, Medicaid. I mean, we are <laughs> since— Maybe since since 2015, we've accepted Medicare and maybe accept Medicaid. I think there is a general political consensus around keeping Medicare and Medicaid around. Maybe I'll be back in the weeds in a few years and this will be proven. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just like the the novelty of it, though, right? I mean, if we did the weeds— Maybe we were doing the weeds. Um, like, in 2014. We were not doing the weeds in 2014. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying, in 2014, like, let's eliminate Medicare and replace it with a privatized system. 
was like a no, very live o- okay, Republican. I think you're overselling the Republican. Po- I, I, there was still a commitment to giving health insurance to seniors that I do not— th- I, Right, I would disagree. But, it, but it was a structural transformation. Sure, but it was still a commitment that, like, there are certain groups of people that yeah. have health insurance. Okay. That reminds me of kind of the— Australia thinks everyone should be in that group, and right. we've decided, like, certain populations should be in that group. But we have never— we haven't really gotten past, like, the 1965 no. consensus that we developed, you know, before any of us were were born yeah. to have any more consensus about, like, okay, like, what about all the other people who, who are not in those groups? Right. And in the Taiwan story, there's a great quote that I felt very lucky to run across from Uwe Reinhardt in his last book before he died about how, like, basically, you know, Canada— Europe and all the uh, developed nations in Asia have sort of settled on this idea that healthcare is a social good. And then the question becomes, like, how do we administer it? But the United States has not reached that kind of consensus. Well, they have for sort of, yeah. like, certain I mean, you populations. Almost, but you wonder, I mean, like, one of the, like, kind of historical things I wonder about is the U.S. created Medicare and Medicaid at a time when a lot of other countries are making their national health insurance system. Like, Canada was building Medicare for All while we were making these programs— Looking back, you almost wonder if that, like, shot us in the foot a little bit. Mm. Like, if we had ended up, like, Taiwan and let this fester a little bit longer and, like, the crisis would have been much worse for a number of decades. But then you end up with this crisis point where everyone gets insurance versus, um, you know, we were able to help the vulnerable populations and they, you know, have access to health care. It made the problem less acute. And I've had that heard that critique of, you know, the Affordable Care Act from people who wanted more. That, like, well, maybe we should have just done— Nothing, and then you. I mean, like I'm. I'm normally a half a loafer. Uh, yeah, but, not but, in this case. But, no, I mean, I. I think this is a serious question about about Medicare, Medicaid in 1965. In part because like that bill passed so overwhelmingly. You know, it's like clear that like the Kennedy and Johnson administrations were not even operating at like the outer edge of what was legislatively possible. They like chose to take like a like a big win. Right. Oh, for for a, a half a loaf. And I think the clear expectation of progressive minded people at that time was like we had the New Deal 30 years ago. Social Security was expanded several times uh, during the Eisenhower administration. Like this is like like the arc of history bends toward justice and bends like fairly rapidly. Um, and that has not proven to be like the, the real no. history and like holding out you know, might have might have been a better idea. Passed too easily, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> too easily. I don't know. I mean, it's like everybody likes it when the bill they co-sponsor gets like 98 votes. Right. But like, but I maybe know. a sign you left something on the table. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, exactly. So yeah, Taiwan. Taiwan. Australia. Australia. I'm really Can't hoping next t- presidential debate, question about Australia. Yeah, well, this is, uh, this this is, is why- This is the start of it. This is why they need to get, frankly- a, a weeds presidential debate because we have much nerdier, more random and obscure questions and we can see who out there even knows anything about it. I want to hear the answer to Sarah's, you tweeted about this, I think, like ask every candidate what their favorite oh, healthcare yeah. system is yeah. from around If anyone the world. lets me moderate a debate, that's my question. <laughs> that's the dream. No one's okay. asked me to moderate a debate. Let's do yet. it. Sarah Cliff debate. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure to me. I'm sure the, the listeners have been, they were agitating Thanks, in the guys. last Ask Weeds Anything. It's like, when's Sarah coming back? Well, here and I am. I didn't tell him, but now <laughs> here it is. I thanks, Dylan. Of course, Osher coming by. I should, should thank uh, Commonwealth Fund again uh, for helping make this uh, really interesting reporting possible. Uh, thanks to Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Bierfeld, the producer, and the Weeds will be back on Friday.
In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.